Amaris Kemp. Hello. Moped Outlaws, episode 96. And um, all right. <laughs> Here we are. Woohoo. We are so glad to have you, Genesis. Yeah. Your, um, your bio and various things, you refer to yourself as a firecracker. I love that. So you are free to explode in your fullness here with whatever you got to share. We want to make you feel welcome. This is not only a safe space, but a brave space. Both Greg and I have been through training about how we show up as uh, less colonized in BIPOC communities. And so bring it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. I'm um, sorry. I'm a, I'm a little excited. It's you game did, time. You did ask um, where we're recording from. So Mark and I have been dear friends, brothers for decades. We're in Northern California. He's about 20 minutes north of me. And yeah, we've had various stories intertwined throughout the years. And I saw you are really busy on guesting. <laughs> Yes, I kind of took a step back, though, because being a new mom and having an eighth month old, I can't really do all the guest opportunities that I used to do when I was prego and before inception of finding out a little seed was inside of me. So, <laughs> so now I am really taking, you know, time to balance it all and just making sure that First, I'm a mom, a wife, and making sure that my daughter has, you know, my undivided attention because everyone keeps saying they grow so fast. And I'm like, I know. I can't believe I have an eighth month old already. <laughs> I know. Do you have a bit of that? Like, I'm still a child. What am I doing with a child? Yeah, because people always tell me you look like a child and I never expect to say said that, oh, you're a mom. And one lady, when I was going to pick up my packages from my husband's um, mailbox, they're like, I saw this girl coming in with some overalls. I was like, who's that kid? And then whenever I got closer, like, oh, that's Genesis. And she's like, oh, wow, you're rocking those overalls. I thought you were like a little kid coming through here. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, no, in my fun 30s. <laughs> Wow. Well, thank you so much for making time to be with us. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, y'all. Yeah. So what comes to mind when you think of Moped Outlaws? So Moped, because I'm, I like adventures. I think about the little mopeds that you ride and then Outlaws. I was like, oh, it kind of sounds like a, like a biker gang or something like that. Cause it's like Moped Outlaws. But then whenever you break it down, it's like, you know, Outlaws. I think each one of us are outlaws in our own respective areas because you may never be someone's cream of crop 
based on something that you do or say. So if you put that with mopeds, mopeds could go really slow, fast or whatever. And then you think about the outlaws and you're like, okay, that moped may be an outlaw in someone's transportation lane or that moped may be an outlaw in someone else's reality because they're using their assumptions or their preconceived biases to make, you know, generalize, um, thoughts. And I was like, that's probably what I did in the beginning because I really didn't know what Moped Outlaws was, but thank goodness for Podmatch matching us together. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I guess as Mark mentioned earlier, like, um, and you know, this is where I potentially stick my foot way down my throat, but let's go for it. Whatever. Um, Black Lives Matter, that whole huge basket that that is is important to us have you in your personal experience now do you find that it's as prevalent on the social consciousness as it was a year ago um personally speaking no and whenever it was on the height of social awareness, I felt like, in my opinion, a lot of people were jumping on the bandwagon just to, you know, go with the cloud of things. And I say that personally and professionally, because during that time, I was working um, for a Fortune 500 oil and gas company. And the company that I worked for was very conservative. And a lot of times I was the only, whether I was the only woman or the only woman of color. And then with me, on the outside, I look African-American, chocolate drop, and people are like, what are you? But I'm actually first-generation American. So my father was from Curacao, so right there off of the tip of Venezuela. And my mom is Caribbean. So whenever I fit into certain rooms, they're like, oh, but you're not really American or you're not black, you're a foreigner or whatever the case may be. And I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm a human being. And I'm sure if you get cut or I get cut, we're all going to bleed red. But what differentiates us is how we look and all of that stuff. But I say that to say that in the beginning, Black Lives Matter was on the forefront of everything because it was all over social media. It was on the news. You know, there was the good parts of Black Lives Matter and there was the bad parts where people were just terrorizing communities and doing things to get a point across when in actuality, you are, you know, not really building up the community in a sense. To me, you're tearing it down based on, you know, the certain things that you're doing. And with me being first generation American, I saw things a little bit differently. Yes, I resonated with what people who look like me were going through, but I also resonated with people who did not look like me, what they were saying about, you know, what was going on. And I'll say that because my family is mixed race. So I feel like we're like the United Nations because everyone is married to someone outside of their race, except myself and my older brother just by choice and you can't help who you fall in love with but um, before that I always dated outside of my race and whenever people found out that my now husband was black they're like he's black I was oh no you're shitting me I didn't know he was black like when when (laughs) (laughs) wow that whole clutching of pearls, no matter the situation, is kind of silly, ultimately, because the emphasis that we put on all this stuff really isn't re- that important. Like, we're, we're sort of getting into it too much. Like, I think we do have reparations to, to make, and we do have a lot of correction to do, especially for people who look like us. But overall, we get too hung up 
on how people are making choices or what community they're part of or how do they identify and all that. It, it becomes kind of an albatross around people's neck. And it's, it's a lot of labor to have to explain yourself and to go through. And, you know, what it really comes down to is people can be amazing. People can create amazing things. And that's one of the things I found when I was listening and looking at your work is that you really are about driving people to their greatest level of success. And, and as a, as a life coach and a fellow life coach myself, I resonated with that about you. Mm-hmm. And thank you for sharing that, Mark. And one thing I want to say, I want to piggyback off of that because after the Black Lives Matter movement, then we had the stop Asian hate movement, like how they were treating the Asian community. And then around that, before that, we had the Me Too movement. Before that, we had the movement where they were treating people of Indian descent a certain way because of what happened after 9-11 and et cetera. So you see there's waves and trends that are going going on there, but you can't categorize one person with the entire racial group and think that that person is a spokesperson for that racial group or everyone in that racial group is alike because there's good and bad in all races and you can't help to be born into a certain racial group because you didn't ask for your parents. Your parents picked you and they birthed you. So excuse my French here, why the hell are we so divided versus looking at ways that we have commonalities and bringing those commonalities together for the bigger and better good of this world to really say, okay, this is how we're going to show up. This is how we're going to make change. This is how we're going to be peaceful or whatnot. But if you're just steady jumping on the bandwagons just to ride the wave, and then once the wave is done, you're laying flat and dormant, what are you doing? Are you part of the solution or are you part of the problem? Yeah, agreed. Totally. (laughs) Nailed it. Is that a conversation you and your husband are active with in thoughts of raising your daughter? So, yeah, yes and no, because I I still want to raise her like with the Caribbean, like upbringing that my parents raised me with. And since my husband is fully American, he has certain ways of wanting to raise her. So just finding a balance together, which makes both of our points heard, but also instills certain values in her is very important. And by us engaging in a conversation, I think that's where it is because we are both first time parents and my husband is a little I like to say he's seasoned, so he's older than me by eight years. So just trying to see his viewpoint and how he grew up and also trying to interject my viewpoint and just making sure that it's the best for for our daughter and how we want her to perceive the world and how we want her to show up with confidence and boldness. And even though my daughter's only eight months now, I always speak life to her and I always tell her like, you know, this this is mommy and daddy. These are our friends and whatnot because I have friends of all races. And I also like to tell her, like, whenever someone is talking to you, make sure that you're looking them in the eye or whatnot. Even though she's she's so young, kids pick up on a lot of things. And it's so important that you ingrain those things in them now when they're young because they're going to remember that. They may not always understand it, but they'll see how you interact with various people. What would you say is Caribbean values? What's an example of of Caribbean values? So with my mom, like, of course, mannerisms, like, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. If you walk by someone, you say good morning to them, whether you know that person or not. If you see your neighbor, you say hello. If you could if you could do something for your neighbor, you do it. You do it for them without wanting something in return or whatnot. And 
for me, that was a little, that was a little hard until I saw my dad do it because I was like, why are we doing this? Like, we don't even know this person or like in the Caribbean, like if you're driving there, like if you need a ride somewhere, someone will just say, Hey, are you going, are you going downtown? Are you going uptown? And they'll just give you a ride freely. But I was like, here in America, you can't really do that, but you can extend grace and say, would you like a bottle of water? If you see someone standing on the street corner, or if you have an, an open package and the person may, you know, look down and out to say, Hey, I have this, would you like this versus assuming that that person was homeless or whatever. Those are different ways that you could extend those Caribbean values without making that person feel less than because you never know what that individual is going through. Another thing, um, too, is the way oh, do y'all hear my baby in the background? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. He's local. No, it's all good. Don't oh, worry about it. Too. I may need to adjust the mic here. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's another thing. Lovely. <laughs> Two is one of the values that my parents have is like whenever you come home from school is you first do your homework and you get all your stuff done, your homework, your chores. If you have animals to tend to, you tend to that. Then once you're done with that, then they'll deem if it's okay for you to go outside and play with the neighbors or do something. But you have to make sure your home-based stuff is taken care of first. So that's one thing that I want to instill in my daughter. Another thing growing up, I didn't have like, you know, the all the technology, even though my parents afford, I didn't have like, you know, the latest phones or the tablets or anything like that. And now looking at what I see with today's kids, everyone is glued to technology and none of the kids really want to interact or play outside because they're on Xbox, Playstations, they're watching YouTube shorts, they're watching TikToks and all this stuff. And I feel like that's taking a sense of human interaction away and people skills. So I want to be mindful with that aspect. And even now at eight months old, my daughter's like reaching for my phone and grabbing it. So I have to be intentional that I put my phone away when I'm with her because I don't want her to be glued to technology. I want her to know that mommy's here with you and I'm going to spend this undivided time because you matter and what's on what's on this phone could come later because this priceless time you're not going to get that back wow yes <laughs> yeah that's very strong and powerful and I'm wondering do you is your husband as firmly rooted in that belief as you are of technology and eye contact and being present in the home, being present for neighbors. Yes. And I feel like um, with my husband, sometimes he's a little bit too present with the neighbor aspect because sometimes he can be extra friendly. And I like to differentiate there because, you know, sometimes women see things differently. So when a man, a man is extra friendly, they'll try to capitalize on that. And I'm like, if my husband is not doing certain things in the household, like he's not going to overextend and do it in your home because this home is first and then whatever's left over, then I'm going to share my husband. But I cannot have you depend on my husband for everything because I need him here in our household to be present. And so just finding that balance because my husband's like, oh, chipper, chipper, happy, go lucky. And I had to <laughs> break it down and say, you know, sometimes women will perceive that as like, you know, a weak spot and an inlet because, you know, let's be real. Men and women think differently. He, here. So I also have to be mindful of that. And um, 
another thing that my husband does really well is whenever he goes to work and comes home, he's very intentional putting his phone, phone away and really spending that uninterrupted time with our daughter. Like he'll make her baby foods from scratch. And sometimes like I'm exhausted, so I'll just give her jar food, but he's very intentional. Um, he'll play with her and et cetera. And sometimes we don't always turn on the TV for her because we want to make sure that she could connect with us. So whether he's like, you know, talking to her or singing ABCs or whatever the case may be, I feel like that's his way of really connecting with her to really be present, even though he's ex extremely tired. And I could also sense when he's tired, I'll get the baby just so my husband could have time to recharge and rejuvenate as well. Sounds like you both have a very conscious relationship with each other besides with your daughter, which oh. is wonderful. <laughs> it's a work in progress. <laughs> of, course, of course it is. And I mean, so boy, that just opens up Pandora's box right there. <laughs> like, I'm reminded of uh, two things. One, I have two sisters. One of them told me, Part of the joy of a marriage is you celebrate when you get through a big challenge in your marriage or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it's even better then. And the other is my youngest sister told me all her choices are for the good of the family. So I think all of us as individuals, things come up in our life where we have a choice and there's an element of like, well, this choice would be best for me. To look, well, okay, is it also best for the family? Yes, and I'm so glad that you brought that up because the people in our lives who have been in marriages longer than I, you could gather wisdom and insight from them. Even though every marital situation is different, you take what applies and you build upon it. And what doesn't apply, I like to say you put it in your treasure chest. So whenever a situation does arise, you could glean from that because feedback is a gift. And it's a gift that you know never stops giving, but it's up to you to either be proactive or reactive with that gift. And whenever I think about my parents, my parents were married for 31 years up until my dad passed unexpectedly in November. So marriage is always going to have, you know, the highs and lows, the hills and the valleys, but how you work through the low points is going to be worth celebrate in the high points, because you'll think whenever another life hiccup hiccup, um, hiccup comes or circumstance, <laughs> you'll be like, oh, I remember when we got through this hard time. And if we could do it back then, we could do it now, even though the times may be different, the year may be different. But you think about the staple part is the breakthrough. It broke you, but you made it through. And what did you learn from that experience yeah. is going to be a momentum that you build upon because marriage is a lifetime. But nowadays I'm a millennial in my 30s. You know, people like my mom says, they get married on a Friday, divorced on a Sunday, and then on to the next. But you have to think about why did you marry this person? Why did you fall in love with this person? And what is your couple's goal? Where do you have that clarity, that focus? And how are you going to work together to really have that synergies to look outward? And a good video that helped me this week bring that back full circle was do you spend so much time pouring into your kids that you negate your spouse? Because when your kids are grown and they're out the house, it's going to be you, your spouse, your partner, or however you relate to that loved one in your life. And that really hit me because I was like, that is so true. <laughs> yeah, it's real. I think all of us can relate to uh, marriages that ended when the children left because all of a sudden they didn't have anything. 
they didn't put that energy and time into their relationship. You said something about giving grace a few minutes ago, and it occurred to me that this is true across all walks of life. It's like giving grace to our partners, our husbands and wives, our children, our neighbors, the people we meet on the street. That's a stance. That's a place to be a human being that creates a whole lot of goodwill in the world. And I loved that, the way you said it, giving grace. And I've been wondering about your spiritual life. Is it appropriate to say you have a spiritual life? Yes, it is. And it definitely has helped me get through various tough seasons in my life. Has the Caribbean influenced your spiritual life? I believe so. My grandmother was heavenly, like, involved in religion and on both sides, both of my grandmas, they have since transitioned on and just looking at the grandmother on my father's side, she was raised Catholic. And so my dad was raised Catholic. The grandmother on my mother's side was raised Anglican, which I guess in here in America, it's similar to a Lutheran or Lutheran. So different ways, um, different religions, but the, I guess the common denominator was their belief in God and a higher power and how they showed that based on how they treated people outwardly. Cause my father's mother was half white, half black. And my, um, mom's mother was completely Caribbean descent. So all the way black, and now we just see that how they steward their life, how they extend grace outward as well as inward. When I say outward, outward is like, you know, external people outside of the family lines. Inward is the people in your family, because sometimes the people in your family could be the biggest critics for you. And sometimes you have to love them from a balcony, which is what I do with some people in my family. I'm like, I love you, but I don't need to be around you. Beautiful. That's a great statement. I love, I'm going to use that. Yeah, love me too. From the balcony. <laughs> um, so in stereotypical surface fashion, my thoughts when I think of spirituality in the Caribbean is um, very ancestral based, the element of voodoo. Oh, no. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like both sides of the family, the fundamental of the spiritual belief is a, is Jesus Christ and God. The, is that true? Yes, that is true. But there are some um, places in the Caribbean where they do believe in that. And at first I thought it was like, uh, I didn't know about that until my mom like really broke it down. So she was saying like certain times when we would travel in the Caribbean, like you don't eat from any and everybody, like you don't eat from strangers, like you don't like let certain people pray for you because you don't know if their hands are clean or whatever the case may be, because not everyone's prayers are going to be for good. Some people are going to have prayers for evil because they see who you are and there's some part of them that is coveted of you. So you have to be mindful of that without making that person feel less than a human being or less than a person because they have a difference in opinion or whatnot. And at first I was like, oh, okay. So then that's also a Caribbean thing that was instilled to me. It's like whenever someone offers me food, if I don't know that person well enough, I'm like, thank you, but no, thank you. Or like you eat before you go to certain places. And I had to learn how to differentiate 
differentiate that as I build relationships with certain people in other cultures. Like some of our good friends, they're Vietnamese and in the Vietnamese culture, if you say no to food, that that's also a sign of disrespect because you're not partaking and sharing a meal with them. You're not breaking bread. So now I know when that relationship I have with our really good friends that are Vietnamese, I know to eat with them because that is a sign of respect and that's a sign of me showing them. But if it's some Joe, Joe off the road that I don't know, no, I'm not going to eat with you at your house because I don't know you. We don't have a rapport and relationship built up. But once I get to know you inwardly and outward, I'm going to try your heart by your heart. And then once I feel like we do connect and we're almost like kindred spirits, then yes, I'm going to break bread with you and partake with you because I don't feel like there's any malice or ill will behind the scenes. That's so beautiful. Before you ask, let me just say, I love that that's even an analogy of life in general. You know, that the substance that we take in to know the source really, not on a surface level, to really know is this really sustenance for my well-being or is this potential poison? (laughs) Great potential poison. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah. I don't mean that literally. I mean that. Yeah. 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 Figuratively. I got gotcha. you. Right. All right. Yeah. The whole idea of unclean hands and intentionality, mm-hmm. because when we prepare our food, we're putting something into it. We're putting our spirit into it. We're putting our intentions into it. Yeah. And I see, I see the wisdom in what you're talking about. The question I wanted to ask that I sort of interrupted a moment ago, forgive me, was what's your favorite meal that your husband cooks for you? Ooh, he cooked so many. So I'm going to say a little insider um, scoop here. So my husband was an executive chef for years before the pandemic and before he got laid off. So right now I got him on this wave where I love lamb chops. So he recently started making me lamb chops and steaks. And I'm going to share something. So, you know, those tomahawk steaks, those big old steaks. So my husband had made two steaks and I can't eat all that meat. And so my mother and I had left, and this was like before I gave birth. When I came back, my husband ate one entire tomahawk steak by himself. And I'm like, Babe, that is way too much meat. But his thing is, like, we don't eat steaks out because he can make his own steaks. But if we do go out to, like, a meat place, we're going to do, like, a Fogo de Chao or Texas A Brazil, a Brazilian steakhouse or whatnot because of the quantity that you get. But other than that, like, we're going to go to Sam's or Costco and get the meat and cook it. So I love lamb chops and a really good steak. And my husband has taught me how to eat a steak well because this is another Caribbean thing. My parents... Parents always cook their meat well done, but since my husband's a chef, he has to have like the the pink in it and et cetera. But I was like, I don't want it where it's like mooing off the plate, <laughs> but I don't want it where it's like dry and chewy or whatnot. So he taught me how to eat a nice meat, like depending on the cut or whatnot. Even when we go to the restaurant, like he'll order my meats for me because I'm like, oh, I want it well done because I didn't know any better until we got together. And I was like, this tastes differently. (laughs) So what are some of your favorite side dishes? Oh, okay. So now I like asparagus. I used to hate them, hate it before. So I like a really good asparagus that is like char, char grill with like some garlic and some butter and stuff like that. 
okra. I love okra. Sometimes he'll do like okra and tomatoes homemade. Wait, wait. Is his okra slimy or clean? Oh, I like it clean because he doesn't want it all slimy. Unless we're putting it like in a soup, like one of those like gumbo type soups, mm-hmm. then it could be like slimy. Um, oh, what else? I love corn, even though they said corn doesn't digest. But then, of course, I do it like the Mexicana way where I want to put like the sour cream, like the chamoy, all of those <laughs> to the fattening way. <laughs> So I'm a big foodie, y'all. So if I keep listing foods, I'm going to get really, really hungry. But I have now watched it because having a baby, you add on a few pounds. So I was like, I definitely don't want to be big as a house. So I have to like watch what I eat. And I'm going up and down these stairs to burn these calories and breastfeeding. I'm still breastfeeding. So that burns a lot of calories, too. (laughs) All right. How about your favorite desserts? Let's just finish it out. (laughs) I love a good cheesecake. Tiramisu. Mm -hmm. If we're at a Mexican restaurant, Tres Leches. I love Tres Leches. And if we're in the Caribbean somewhere, I want a really good coconut tart, like from scratch. My favorite is butterscotch pudding. Ooh, okay. Homemade. how How about you? Oh my god, a favorite! I don't have a favorite dessert. They're all so good, like key lime pie, um, sweet plantains, hot fudge sundaes. There's, there's really sugar's good. (laughs) May not be good for you, but it sure is good in many, many forms. Awesome. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Genesis, is that okay okay with you? Yeah, that's rock and roll. Um, you wrote this book called Chocolate Drop in Corporate America. And what I wanted to know about the book, aside from other things that you want to share, is do you think there's something inherent in the power dynamics of corporate culture that you think demeans or undermines people's sense of sovereignty? Yes and no. And the reason why I say yes, I'm going to say it coming from an oil and gas background where I was in the industry for 12 years and 15 in corporate America. So whenever I feel like sometimes they could demean people is because whenever you look at DEI and B diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, a lot of these corporations are hiring to quote unquote fill metrics and show, Oh, we're diverse. We're equitable. We're inclusive. And we have a sense of belonging. But whenever you look at the progression and the succession planning of those individuals within the corp- corporation, their careers are not, accelerating as fast as someone who looks like Greg and you. So I feel like that is a way of undermining those individuals because they have the same educational backgrounds. They may have the same work history and ethics, but why aren't they getting promoted and accelerating as fast as someone that looks like, you know, someone who can pass for the Caucasian group of people. And also looking, looking back, is whenever I was working in upstream, which is drilling and dealing with the rigs and operation super um, superintendents and et cetera, they hired a lot of um, people that went to certain Ivy Leagues. But then whenever you're downstream, which I worked in downstream for a bit, which is chemicals, they hired people from the HBCU, so historically black colleges and et cetera, the engineers and et cetera. But are those engineers not the same engineers that went to a PWC? Do they not have 
have the same degree plans and et cetera. So for example, here in Texas, we have A&M. So for those Aggies that may be listening, they'll be like, whoop. And then we have um, Prairie View A&M, which is also a um, sector of A&M University. One is PWC, predominantly white college. One is HBCU. If you look at the engineering degree plan, the classes are, are the same. So why are you recruiting for downstream for this engineer, but then recruiting um, this other engineer for upstream? What is the delineation there? What and, differentiates upstream and downstream? So downstream, you'll see those are the people that work in the refinery, the chemical plants, and et cetera. Upstreams are like the people that do some of the expat assignments. They rotate to different rigs. There's operations superintendents. They have a sense of development. They have a sense of working in the production company, and et cetera. The list goes on and on. So it's kind of like, you know, the upper the upper echelon pay-wise, and if you work in upstream, you're going to get paid really well. If you work in downstream, you're going to get paid well, but not not in comparison to what someone in upstream makes. So, for example, like people who started in upstream and if they got transferred downstream, they're like, oh, dang it. Like, I'm going to, you know, my bonuses may not be that big or my raises may not be that big because of the reputation of downstream. And let's be honest, downstream, they don't spend a lot of money like drill, drillers and et cetera. When I was working drilling, you're working on wells and rigs that are making a million dollars plus a day. So you definitely don't want to shut down, you know, that rig because that's going to cost the company money and you may be seeing your way out the door. When I went to working in chemicals as a RMC, raw material coordinator, and I was sourced at PP, which is polypropylene, a form of plastic, it's like you don't want to stock out a chemical plant because that could cost the company million, millions. But look at the dis, look at the distinction between millions on a rig where there's other um, service providers or millions in a chemical plant where people locally may be depending on that information that's because they're like in small rural areas sometimes or et cetera. So you just have to look at the differentiations there. I hope that answered your question, Greg. Yeah. Um and I'm wondering, from your experience, um, <laughs> what is your take on global warming, carbon-based energy, and the individuals that are involved in the industry that you were a big part of for a good period of time? Oh, this is a hot topic. So global warming, I do feel like global warming is real. Carbon, carbon footprints, I feel like whether you're in the oil and gas uh, space, we all can do a better job at reducing carbon. Um, now, energy is going to be a hot topic. I had, um, I guess, the lack of better words. So, I've had friends who worked at this big oil and gas company, and you know, oil and gas company, you're going to put push stuff. And they converted over to Teslas, and people looked at them crazy because when Tesla was first out on the market, it's like, what are you doing driving a Tesla working for this company? Like, do you not know that we're over here making these products? And I feel like if you look at it from an individual level, but also a holistic level, if we want to save the environment, then we each have to take a vital part in the environment. What are we doing about sustainability? What are we doing to reduce carbon emissions? What are we doing to promote um, to promote more more ways of really being autonomous within the environment because if you think about it, look at what's going on in the news. There's tornadoes in different places that have never been faced with tornadoes. There's flooding in places that have never flooded. Here in Texas, we had this major cold snap not too long ago. Um, just look at the different 
situations that are happening around the world. And can you tie that with global warming? I, I think so. Or can you tie it with what some people are saying, the zombie apocalypse or, <laughs> or the signs that Jesus is coming back? I feel like because we have been doing so much here on earth, we're not giving our own earth grace and breathing room because of all the things that man-made um, are trying to do just to help with efficiency, but is it really helping with efficiencies if we're paying for a certain weather climates and et cetera on the back end? Do you think it's possible for the gas and oil industry to transform in a manner which is sustainable to individuals involved in the industry? <laughs> um, you know, that one, I'm going to say yes and no, because, you know, they're going to think about the green, which is their cash flow and, if it's going to hurt their pocketbooks, they may be a little bit hesitant about doing it. And I definitely think it's going to have to come from the t- the top down as well as the bottom up. And they're going to have to find a sweet spot to see what it is that can be done for the good of the good of the company to make profits, but also the good of, you know, our the world that we live in. And I think there's going to need to be a lot of conversations there. We're going to have to look at data and metrics and et cetera. And I'm no longer in that space anymore since I got laid off in the pandemic. That's another thing that happened to me. Hmm. after working there for seven and a half years and now i'm transitioning into the medical field so (laughs) all right congratulations what what was the intended impact from your book and what kinds of things did it shift in terms of how people related to you once it came out so one of the intended impacts was to really drive these courageous and difficult conversations to really see past the color of somebody and the name. I'm going to start with the name first and I'm going to weave it in, Mark, if, um, if that's fine with you and Greg. So the name of the book, Chocolate Drop in Corporate America, I wanted it to be a fun and catchy name, but I also wanted it to be a name that people are going to like, what does she mean? Chocolate Drop in Corporate America. I am, you know, black. I want to say Hershey Kiss, but I didn't want to be sued by the Hershey company. So I said chocolate drop and I happen to work in corporate America. The subtitle is from the pit to the palace, meaning in life, we're all going to have those pit moments, which are those dark seasons or those trials and tribulations that we have endured. But how do we transition and transform into our palace? Each one of us palace experience is going to be different. That's our level of success, not measured with someone else's. It's your personal level of success of what you have achieved, what you're going to achieve and et cetera. So I wanted to put that there. And then another thing I wanted to really be intentional was you see there's a world in the background and the world is to depict that these issues don't just happen in America, but they can happen worldwide. And if you look closer, there's people from various industries on the cover of the book, as well as national um, nationalities, ethnicities, and et cetera, because no matter um, what industry you're in, no matter what your race is, we have all been slighted on the workforce or outside of the workforce in some form of fashion. But if we don't have these realistic conversations to talk about things, then we're missing the mark here. Because even though I may be a chocolate drop or and y'all may be vanilla drops, we have probably had some type of disparities, whether it's sexism, nepotism, racism, or whatever the ism may be that has made us feel as if we were invalid or we weren't good enough based on the certain circumstances that we were in at the time. So 
the whole premise is, is to drive conversations and to really take the blinders off and get the microscope out so we could go beyond the surface level and unpack things. And even though I'm sharing it from my experience of what I endured, by me putting it out, putting it out there, someone else is picking it up to say, oh my gosh, Genesis went through this and I went through this in a different area. And they may or may not look like me, but the fact that I was bold and courageous to share it out there, I never know how someone else's life life um, situation may be parallel to it and they could relate to it. And if I could say this too, I also started the back of my book with two questions here, Mark and Greg, because I want you to really think about it because you could see how it could relate to you. So it says, what challenges in the workplace have you encountered that left you feeling as if you were mistreated? That was question one. Question two, have others who were unqualified seemingly passed you by in the ranks? And I want you to think about it whenever you first started out your career to where you are now. Everything in between when you think about those those questions there, because whether you have faced challenges with your pay disparity, where you realize that you were not being paid fairly in comparison to your peer, whether you face challenges that you got passed up for a promotion because the boss just liked someone else better and they had a better rapport. Whether you got past that because you maybe you needed to take a step back in your career because you needed to be a mother or father to your kids and you couldn't commit to traveling. You couldn't do the extracurricular activities because you knew that you were the only one that could take care of your baby at home. Should you be penalized for that whenever, you know, you have an extra level of responsibility? Whether you said no to a job opportunity because you knew that that job opportunity was going to require more of you and you had other things that were going on in the back end that you didn't feel was privy for you to share with that employer because quite frankly speaking, it's none of your their business what you have going on on the home front because they're not in your home 24 hours, seven days a week. So that's none of their business. So there's other levels there. When you, when you talk about challenges, and if I break it down that way, I'm sure that may be a challenge. Greg, Mark, have you had any challenges similar to that or any that I didn't mention? My answer is I got the red carpet, white privilege, white male treatment all the way up. Everything came to me wrapped in a beautiful package. And the challenges that I faced were more internal competency challenges and the, the ability to, you know, really up-level my skills. So for me, I'm the epitome of a privileged person. But fortunately, thanks to the Remember Institute and the Intersection for Mankind, I now have some conscious awareness of that privilege and how that impacts others. And I kind of have a follow-up question, but I'll wait till Greg answers this question that you've posed to both of <laughs> us. Um, <clears throat> I think the past 10 years I've experienced ageism and I'm 60 right now and have been an independent contractor since 2006 and kind of got tired of it, wanted to enter back into the paycheck world and didn't even get interviews. And from talking with some peers and my own experience, um, I definitely was looked over because of my age. Mm -hmm. 
So that's a personal challenge that you face, Greg, as a white male ageism. And Mark, you had the silver platter, the spoon, the red carpet, the limos, everything (laughs) based on uh, white privilege that you mentioned. But that can also be a great thing and a bad thing, because now that you have that, you could be an ally to someone who does not look like you because your voice can be heard and you could be seen in rooms that other people may not be afforded the ability to walk into. So I hear that. And and the the original question I asked had to do with what kind of pushback did you get in your circle around the impact of your book? Oh, you just put this book out because Black Lives Matter came out. And I'm like, no, I had no idea. God didn't tap me and say, Genesis, guess what, girl? Black Lives Matter is coming. Girl, you better get that book out there. (laughs) No. (laughs) Or like, who are you to talk about this story when you're young, you haven't been in the workforce that long? Well, I've been in the workforce for 15 years. You know, I never really had like a fast food job. My first job was real estate. Then I worked at the cancer center. Then I went into oil and gas in high school, worked my way up to an HSC manager, then transitioned to a big Fortune 500 company. So I have experience there. And I also have two older brothers who are within the oil and gas space and people around me. So I've never really had that quote unquote first job experience that was like selling popcorn or working at a fast food restaurant or whatever the case may be. I always jumped into a corporate setting. So I was like, I feel like my educational background, my work experience and et cetera, because no one can take away my experiences and tell me that that did not happen to me. Another thing is um, some people are like, oh, how can you be for the people whenever you people don't come together? And I'm like, you people? Wow. <laughs> wow. You people. Okay. Okay. Oh, wrong foot already. <laughs> so just various things. And then I've also had the other side where, I put this book out there and someone who used to work for the U S government said my story inspired him so much to talk about what he went through working for the U S government and how he ended up, you know, opening a lawsuit and all these other things. I had no idea a story like that would have even happened working for the U S government. I'm like, wow. So just different things like that. But I, I tell people, you know what? My my job is not to impress you. My job is to put information out there and whoever it resonates with, that's part of my tribe. And I would be doing myself a disservice and a disjustice if I didn't share my story because obviously it happened to me for a reason. It didn't just happen to me, but it happened for me. And the four part is to accelerate that to make sure that issue or circumstances don't have happened to anyone else if I could have my say in it. Do you mind my asking, were you educated in a college slash university system? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if you, because if you were, you're a very powerful speaker and very eloquent. And it's a rarity that someone has that eloquence without formal education. Yeah, not everybody can be like me. <laughs> That's true, Whitey. <laughs> um, so there's this sort of inherent aspect of the conversation that covers you know, racial bias, but there's another really important bias, which has to do with the bias against women. Hmm. And we've, we've sort of moved the conversation forward in this country enough that I think most of the people that listen to our show understand the need for reparations around the issues of color. And I'm wondering what you think is the proper structure or if any for reparations related to patriarchy. Hmm. Oh, okay. That's a hard one here. So I'm going to speak from Genesis 
point of view. So when it comes to reparations, I want people to see reparations as something that this group of individuals, not just want, but something that they need based on historical things that have taken place. And those historical things that have taken place have really left a mark on certain individuals because maybe they were personally tied to slavery based on their ancestral lineage. And those hurts and pains, they can't wipe that away because it's always going to be within their DNA and family line. So when it comes to reparations, I think those individuals should be compensated for something that they did not inherently ask for because no one says, oh, yes. I want you to be my master and call me your slave. I want you to work me into like different things like that, that happened. Did those things happen? Yes, they did happen. Are we sorry that it happened? Yes. Are some people sorry that it didn't happen? Yes. And when these individuals ask for reparations, they should be given reparations because if you think about, you know, the native Americans and et cetera, they have reparations, they have casinos, they have all types of, things there and they did go through hard hardships too so did african-american people uh, or let's just say black and brown people because some people don't want to be classified as african-american because they don't have any african lineage within them so i just want to be um politically correct here another thing whenever you think about um patriarchy are people trying to give reparations to just check the box to say, oh, yeah, we gave you the money, now shut up? Or are you trying to give reparations because you are genuinely sorry and apologetic of what happened and you want to move the needle forward to make sure a situation like this does not repeat? Because history does not repeat in a sense, it rhymes. And even though we may be in different places, different times, if we keep practicing the poor, the poor things that we did wrong or continue to pass judgments, are we just repeating history or are we trying to do better? Because once you know better, you do better. Yeah. What does, what did you mean by history does not repeat it rhymes? So, for example, here, I'll just put it in layman terms. Like, you know, back in the day, they had the bell-bottom pants and those platform boots. Now here, we have what they're called bootleg pants. To me, they look like bell-bottoms. And women have these big old platform heels. So we had that back then, but now it has repeated, but it's rhyming. We don't call it bell-bottoms. We call them bootlegs. We don't call them platforms. We now call them, I don't know what the ladies call them, but... You know, right. my feet. So same thing, different <laughs> yes. names. Yes, same thing, different names. So what what does the uh, saying say? Same time, different bat channel? And that's a very powerful statement you're making because it brings to heart for me, reparations aren't about righting a wrong. It's about equity. It's about the mm-hmm. three of us sitting here knowing and experiencing our equity with each other. And one thing I'll say too, like in a sense, I feel like before I got laid off, I got a sense of reparations from this corporate company that I was working for. I'm not going to disclose the name for proprietary reasons, but um, whenever the George Floyd incident happened, they got us in a room, those of us that identified as black or African-American, and they asked what our personal stance with racism was. I didn't say anything because I was like, oh, I'm not going to be handled with a long handle wooden spoon. So all of my other peers, and I think it was less than 20, raised their hands. So there was a manager, supervisor, and whatnot. Then they called on me and said, Genesis, what's your take? And I said, 
personal or professional? And both. So I said, okay, well, personally, I have a problem whenever my nieces and nephews, well, I'll use my sister's kids. My sister's kids are half white and they tell me they don't fit in with the black kids at school and they don't fit in with the white kids. People call them zebras. People call them all types of names, but you can't help who, you know, they're born to. And when my sister lived in California, they would look at her and her partner and they will size him up, call them names as they were walking down the street because he's he's white and she's black. And people would ask my sister, are those your kids? And I'm like, oh no, she just stole the kids. She just picked them off the side of the road and said, you're going to be mine. <laughs> um, and then my brother's kids, they're half Indian. So you know, one little kid told my nephew that he couldn't play with him because he wasn't pink. I busted out laughing because I was like, oh, what's pink? I've never seen a pink person. And so my sister-in-law, who's a teacher, is like, oh, that's a Caucasian person. And there's certain things that she told me you can't stay in school because, of course, you're going to be in trouble. And I'm like, really? Someone's teaching their kid? And my nephew was like probably like five or six at the time this information at five or six years old, why can't they just be a kid and play together? So I'm like, we really have some messed up people in the world. Then my other brother, his daughter is truly African-American. Her mom is um, from Africa. She's from Cameroon. So there's so many different complexities there. And then my husband's stepmom, she's Mexican. She's from Guadalajara. And whenever, you know, the political climate when people were talking about build the wall i was like i can't condone that because i have some mexican people in my family i can't be like yeah build the wall because that's telling my people my my family and the people i love yeah we're gonna build the wall and shut you out there you go like you cannot say certain things like that and so i shared that there and then i also shared about you know my work situation i was like okay well here i am I started with this company as an admin assistant. I took a huge pay cut coming from an HSC manager, health, safety, and environmental, to work for a big company. I had to work my way up. Now I'm doing the work at, of a professional. I'm traveling for the company. They send an unmarked block car to my house to pick me up. I have Emerald Isle a- access. I have a corporate Amex car. I have all the bells and whistles, but there's no respect on my check. And when I said what I said, along with some other stuff, one week later, I got a phone call that I was getting a $20,000 salary increase. And I'm like, is this hush money or are you doing it? Because little did you know, there was HR representation in the room that I had no idea was in the room. And you're doing this to cover your tracks and really show that you're trying to be equitable. And they didn't even know I had a book out. So I'm like, This doesn't make me feel good because it also shows that I was underpaid in comparison to my peers, which I already knew because in a global meeting, they accidentally flashed up a slide deck where it had the progression of salaries and nowhere on there did I see my classification level or salary and I was doing the same work of my peers. And I'm like, I screenshotted it really quickly and I had a one-on-one with my supervisor. I was like, help me understand here. Where is my salary and where is my, where is my career succession plan? Because when I saw the screen up in our global meeting, I didn't see anything that relate to me up there. And so, Oh, well, we're going to work on it. Like we need to go to HR, you know, your career path has been non-traditional. You um, have a degree from the university of Houston. It's, you know, your degree plus your years of service, your ye and all of this stuff. And I'm like, that to me honestly sounded like some jargon BS. And I'm like, this is some baloney here. And I'm like, okay, okay. 
and I literally went to work, but I was not fully engaged. And on the side, I was really looking for other job placements. And I guess they probably found wind of that because I'm like, you know, at the end of the day, money talks and people walks and I know what I'm worth. And if you don't see what I'm worth, then it's time for me to politely build my exit strategy and leave stage left or stage right. Because obviously you don't respect me enough because I don't see any respect on my check, but I see me coming here day in, day out, putting my all in and busting my butt to serve your company. And I'm never going to be the CEO of the, of this company, nor do I want to, but I should still be treated fairly in comparison to my peers. Well, that's amazing. What an amazing story. Um, I want to move the conversation along again. Thank you for that. You have transitioned in your life to another role as a coach. And this is something I share with you. So, and I also noticed that you're producing your own um, media. And so I have a couple questions. The first one is, what does Ngozi mean? And why did you name your show that? Okay, so, oh, go ahead. I have a follow-up. Go ahead. So, Negozi Time Multimedia is in conjunction with a network that I'm part of, WBNN. So, it's not a name that I came up with. It's a name that our producer, Oladeli Malawa Ngozi, came up with, and he renamed himself that based on whatever he understood what his name meant originally, what his parents named him, and what he wanted the world to see him as and representate. So that's part of the Negozi time. And I can't remember off the top of my head the meaning of it, but I could definitely cycle back and ask him. And when I first started with that organization, I came on as an intern and they found me online based on some of the other media things that I was doing in conjunction with collaborations. And he, the way he approached me, he's like, oh, I thought you were a fraud. So I'm going to put you to the test. I'm like a fraud. I'm like, do you know who you're talking to? And I was like a little big headed there. And I'm like, no, I don't think I want to do business with you. If you're going to call me a fraud off the back, like, I don't know you from Adam or Eve and you're just coming for me. Like, if you come for me, I'm going to come for you in a polite way. (laughs) So we ended up working together. I passed the internship and now I'm a host on his network and he provides all these different, um, commercials for me and what do you call them what are they spotlights i don't know if they're like public service announcers but they're different like corporate sponsors like tide has sponsored me chevrolet and um iced tea cocoa uh commercial and different stuff so that's been a cool thing so very cool congratulations yeah congratulations let's just celebrate that for a second Yeah. (laughs) yeah right on My follow-up question is about your life as a coach. What is it about coaching that really feeds you internally, spiritually, and professionally? And who do you serve? Okay. So transparency here, I fell into coaching. I had no idea that I was going to be a coach until someone reached out to me after the book came out and said she wanted to do more in the higher education space. She was a Caucasian lady and she said she really wanted to push the needle forward. So I fell into coaching. What I, what fuels me is the fact that I can make an imprint in order to drive an impact, which is building a legacy and paving a way for future generations to come by getting someone to turn inwardly. Because once you know who you are, you're not going to fall victim to what the world wants you to be because you have clarity and focus. So that is a factor that drives me and it keeps my momentum building because I'm not just doing it for Genesis, but I'm doing it for the person that is linking arms 
with me and they're going to have to put in the work in order to see results because I can spoon feed you all day long, but it's up to you to swallow that food and digest it. And who I serve are people who are, who want to be firecrackers like me and mindset hackers, because in order to push the needle forward, you need to be able to hack your own mindset and shift certain paradigms going from imposter syndrome to knowing that you are a badass woman and man and you're here for the world to show up to be you in your authentic voice with no steering wheels, no handlebars, no training wheels, because you are authentically you, you're bold, you're courageous, and you're ready to be lifted and gifted. So if if you're ready to take on that challenge and hack your own mindset in order to lay something down for the world to pick up, then I'm ready to ride with you. Damn. <laughs> yeah, well said. Well said. So can uh, you give an example of what a mindset hack is, something that you might teach? Is there that's what I was wondering. Like, do you have a morning thing that you do that's a part of your support of your own mind hack? Yeah. So first you wake up in the morning with a spirit of gratitude because there's someone else that did not have the ability to wake up. So I like to say six feet above the ground is better than six feet in the ground. Um, Another thing to do is be grateful that you do have certain capacities. Like you can see, you can talk, you can walk and et cetera. And I took those things for granted until my dad was paralyzed from the waist down after being in the hospital after three days. And when my dad's entire quality of life shifted, it made me realize that we take things for for granted until it's no longer a reality for us and we need to depend on someone else to do certain things for us. And I was like, wow. So now I'm like, I'm grateful I could walk. I'm grateful I could do certain things. Another thing I like to do in the morning is start with a devotional, whether I'm using the YouVersion Bible app or if I'm in the bathroom, um, just Say, say like, oh God, I'm so thankful that you woke me up. I'm so thankful that I'm in my right mind. I'm so thankful that I have kindred spirits around me. I'm so thankful that you're bringing the right people to me at the right time. And we're doing life together unapologetically. I'm thankful that I have a husband that loves me and a husband that is dedicated for me. He's not a whoremonger. He's not doing anything out there that's outlandish or whatever. And I'm so thankful that I have a beautiful, healthy daughter that is a blessing to me because some women who want children can't have children. Mm-hmm. And just little things that just pop up in my spirit. I like to make sure that I sh- share it in my gratitude. Another thing that I like to start my day off with is either a really nice, hot, steamy shower to just wake myself up. Because once I get going and have a nice shower, I'm recharged, I'm rejuvenated, I have that sleep off of me. And then have a really nice breakfast. I'm a breakfast eater, y'all. And I feel like I can't function without eating breakfast, even if I have to like grab a bagel and eat a bagel while driving. Like, <laughs> But do it safely. (laughs) How do you find most of your clients come to you? How do they find you to work with you? What happens? So some people find me on LinkedIn on my other brand. Other people, you know, will refer me to people within their pipeline based on some of the questions that they may ask. Hey, do you help with this or whatnot? And also in the beginning, Clubhouse. I was on Clubhouse and I met a lot of different people within the Clubhouse space by just getting up in rooms and just talking and people are like, oh, I resonate with you. Let's work together. I'm like, okay, well, first, let's make sure it's a good fit both ways. <laughs> yeah. Do you have aspirations for writing another book? 
I do. So I want to do a workbook that goes along with Chocolate Drop in Corporate America because as people are reading, I really want them to be intentional. I just, I have the thoughts in my head. I just need to get them out on paper. And then I'm also thinking about writing something about my dad's life story or something about like a dad and a father because I was really, really close to my dad. I would say like two peas in a pods and he was like literally like my best friend. And you said your mother and father were together to the end of his life. Yes. Right? And was that this last November he passed? November 2020. Okay. And is there something in their relationship, like being paralyzed from the waist down, shifted their relationship dramatically? What yes. Did, what gifts have you received from witnessing their relationship in that shift? Just the fact that, you know, my mom stepped stepped aside and, you know, I really saw the vows really accentuate there for better or for worse, richer or poorer, because, you know, my dad went from doing everything. He drove my mom around like he did everything for my mom to where my mom had to go to be selfless to really like, you know, help my dad, like get him out of the bed, get him shower to even me, like having to help change my my dad's catheter, having to, you know, change his his, um, what do you call it? The depends and different stuff like that. And I feel like just seeing my mom go through that was also hard for her to see her husband in that situation because it's something that happened in the hospital. He go walks into the hospital and three days later, we find out that he's paralyzed from the waist down and we're not sure if it was due to a spinal tap or what, or a stroke. And he went to rehab, got worse and, there's other things that happen there, but whenever I see that, what my mom did from a wife perspective, but also the perspective of a friend, it's mind blowing because how many people would do that? Like, you know, it takes a strong person to be able to withstand certain things. But the only thing that my mom wasn't able to do was drive because she didn't really know how to drive. So I had to, you know, go get certain things for, you know, both my mom and my dad, and then also having my husband step in and help where needed. Also, you know, tested our marriage because sometimes he felt like I put my father before him and I may have because, you know, I have to help my parents. And that's another Caribbean thing. Like when your parents are older, you help your parents. You don't put your parents in a home. And that's different versus like American person versus and I did have disciplines that come in, PT, OT, so physical therapy, occupational therapy, and, and a nurse, but they're not there 24 hours, so the rest falls on my mom and me, and my dad helped me when I was a baby, so it's a circle of life. I need to help him because he didn't ask for that. It happened to him. <laughs> wow. Boy, I really hope that you come to writing your father's story because it sounds like an amazing story for everybody involved. That's crazy. Even your heart, as you mentioned. (laughs) I want to know what your favorite music is. You know what? I'm just going to go off the riff here. I'll just pick CHH right right now, which is Christian hip hop. Do you like, um, oh, shoot, DC DC talk? This is old school. I haven't heard DC talk, but I know Canton Jones, Andy Minio, he's um, Tadashi, Trip Lee, Lecrae. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I remember in the 90s, I went to a Christian bookstore with my little sister and I heard DC talk and I was like, oh, okay. It was hard. It was great. It was 
What I gotta go her? look that one up. They're, they've got a song called Jesus Freak that um is that was the that was the single I heard and I was like, oh my gosh. Brilliant. Can you sing it, Greg? No, <laughs> I cannot do justice to that. Um <laughs> <laughs> I could read I could, the words are like, what will people say when they find out I'm a Jesus freak? What will people think when they find out I'm a Jesus freak? And, and the rhyming, the, the bars were solid in it. Um, what about Kirk Franklin? You like Kirk Franklin? I do like Kirk Franklin. Yeah. yeah. I like a little bit of everything. One of the biggest memories I have right now is when the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo was here. My dad and I saw Kid Rock and I had took my mom and my dad started a chant in the club level section. It's like when I say kid, you say rock. And so it was like hilarious. And so that was my mom's first and last rodeo because someone stepped on her heel with some cowboy boots and she said, never again. Wow. <laughs> wow. You really all right. So I see a little bit of everyone. <laughs> How do people find you? So the easiest thing, just go to my website, genesisamarskemp.net. There are various tabs for different things that I'm working on. And you you could go there or if you're on social media, just type in Genesis Amaris Kemp, whether you're on Instagram, Facebook, or even Twitter. I do tweet. <laughs> I don't tweet a lot, but I do. <laughs> that very personal. Um... <laughs> Um, I really have appreciated this time has flown by. You are a powerhouse and um, being in your presence, you sharing your energy is been grace. Thank you. My pleasure, Greg. Thank you for having me. And now that you've met and we've met, we want you to know that please reach out to us in the future. If there's anything we can do to humanly connect and reaffirm what you're doing in your life and, how you're showing up. If there's anything you need, please reach out to us. Let us know when that next book comes out. God bless your family. Yes, Bobby's coming. (laughs) (laughs) All right. right, It's time. Thank you so much, Mark. And y'all, you just heard my baby in the background. She's saying, Hey, (laughs) recording stopped.